Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the No Shortage of Questions podcast. We're excited that you've uh, made this part of your day. My name is Nick. I'm a pastor in Texas. And I'm, as always, I am joined by my good friend, Andy, up in Cambridge, Minnesota. Andy, how are you doing today? Nick, I'm doing awesome. I always look forward to hanging out with you for 45 minutes to an hour. Great to hear your voice. How are things uh, going up in Minnesota? Is it uh, snowing yet? Uh, there's snow. Someone told me there's snow forecast for Saturday. They said, I saw a snowflake on the weather app. And it was chilly last night. My wife likes to sleep with the uh, window open. I was freezing all night. And I, I got up early and it was cold. And so I put a winter hat on and uh, all kinds of coats just to let everyone know that I'm cold. And uh, no one seems to, they don't care because they like it cold. So, uh, yeah. I love the passive aggressive re rebellion. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So when I left the house this morning, our kids who are hybrid in school and are not in school today, uh, my daughter had a hat on and her winter coat on at the kitchen table, and my son Peter was sitting just in his pajama bottoms and no shirt, uh, which gives you a little idea of how the uh, temperature regulation is uh, being handled in our family. That's hilarious. So what's the temperature in your house? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll just file it under cold, and we have not turned the furnace on because uh, we're that cheap, that tight. We are going to save uh, money uh, to whatever it takes. And uh, so there you go. That's hilarious. I mean, it's, it's warmed up now, but I think the low last night was, I don't know, it probably was around freezing somewhere. That's hilarious. That's awesome. I love it. So I got to ask you, I, I saw on Facebook, Cambridge, Menace, Cambridge Lutheran Church is now doing this devotion series. And there you were doing a devotion, looked like in the evening, and you had your shorts and, 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 and sweatshirt on, which is a great look, shorts and sweatshirt. I'm all about that. But you looked, I don't know what it was, you looked very tan sitting there. And, and I mean, you just looked like you had just come off the beach. Have you been to the beach recently? Or you look very tan like you've been uh, <laughs> oh, it's, hanging out. It's at the tanning booth, Nick. Got it. So that that's whatever people in Minnesota, they put tanning booths in their basement? <laughs> yes, that's right. That was, uh, no, I'm totally kidding. It was not the tanning booth. That was recorded on August, I think it was August 18 or August 8. And uh, I was up north at my grandfather's cabin and did a weekend up there. And I think I recorded 13 different video shots in all kinds of different locations. So, Nick, in that, I was authentically tanned from the sun. And I got to use those before the snow flies around here. And uh, so, yeah. Okay. So that's the, because I thought your hair looked a little different too. So that's the pre recorded. Okay. <laughs> that's right. Pre recorded is correct. Some of us are able to do those things live. Yeah, that is correct. People like you, you are the content king, Nick Billardello. You are. I am very impressed, very humbled. And I, I, my competition gene kicks in a little bit. I need to keep up with you. So, but you do very well at content. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, you not only do more of it, you have higher quality than I do. So it's both, uh, you know, quantity and quality. So. Oh, stop. Stop. <laughs> That's right. I wish I was kidding. I'm kidding. So, so where are <laughs> we right, at? Let's let's uh, let, let's jump into Acts chapter four. So we are in Acts chapter four, and uh, last week we we looked at Acts chapter three, and uh, P Peter gave this great sermon that we looked at and said, "Well, that could be Lutheran, right?" And and so today, so he healed the guy, he gave a sermon, and then uh, he was brought 
uh, the, basically the temple police force grabbed them uh, and uh, brought them uh, to the, the priest and the captain of the temple. So that's where we're starting today, verses 1 through 4. So while Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. So Peter and John, they heal this guy, and then they start preaching about Jesus, and the, the Sadducees come, and they're annoyed. They're annoyed. So what do they do? Well, they arrest them, because nothing, uh, there's no greater excuse to arrest somebody than they annoy you. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> that's great. But right. I would arrest some church members, Nick. Is that, <laughs> that's, right, that's great. I, I'm not saying anything. Despite <laughs> the opposition, the number of Christians kept increasing and growing to now we're at 5,000, which is amazing. In just four chapters, they went from the 12 disciples to 5,000. So opposition, did not slow the church down at all, the early church. So, Andy, what would happen to the church in America if it received more opposition? Well, if, if you think about this, often we have this idea that in the church we would grow, and if things were just easier, if we had more money, more influence, if the culture was more in our favor, if we had more of whatever. And think about China. Uh, what was it, 100 years ago before or after World War II, somewhere in that time zone, or somewhere in that era, all of the missionaries were kicked out of China, and they thought, this is so sad, we've invested how many decades in China, all of the church is going to collapse, all of that work is going to be lost. And what happened in China is when we got back in sometime after Nixon to see the church had exponentially multiplied. It had grown in ways that they couldn't believe it. It's one of the fastest, most expansive house church movements in the whole world, and Christianity was booming in China. The Holy Spirit was totally at work, and almost to the degree that they say, you know, the Western missionaries would have slowed down the growth had they still been there. And and I think that, you know, in the face of opposition— the church can often grow. We think it would grow if it got easier. Often it grows fastest when there is opposition. And and if we had more opposition, it kind of depends on, on what you mean. But where does spiritual life, where do we really look for Christ? One of the things I always say in my preaching is that all of life points us to our need for Jesus Christ. He, The good news is the answer. And, I mean, those are, you know, people go through a divorce, people go through an illness, people go through a death in the family, people go through any sort of struggle you know, there are no atheists in foxholes, and they start thinking spiritually, and they're looking to Christ, and they're growing, and they're seeking, and they're finding him. So in in some ways, if we experience personal opposition or opposition of the church, yeah. And and if things were easier, it, uh, yeah, it does not mean we would grow faster, even though we often think it would be uh, easier to grow if things were easier. But also, I don't think it—opposition is not really what is the only trigger of what grows the church. The church grows when the Holy Spirit is doing powerful things and is changing people's lives, and when we're ambassadors of God to one another, and we embody and the Holy Spirit works through us. I think that's really kind of what happens and uh, what China shows us one further thing is that it's not really about having buildings and having, you know, political, you know, blessing. You know, China has been more recently a little more open to the church with the occasional crackdown. But if you look at Rome as well, I mean, the, the early church, and this is what we're talking about in the books of Acts, also grew exponentially until when? 
until two things happened, until the church was adopted by the state and it became the state of religion, and also when the Christian church was allowed to have buildings and to build their own buildings. And if you look at the historical curve, that's when the Christian church in many ways plateaued in the early church, and prior to that, it had multiplied much faster. Nick? Yeah, I I was thinking back to when Abiding Grace first started, the congregation that uh, I was the mission developer at, still, still, still serve at, Back in 2010, when when we first started gathering together, uh, the there was a, a, a small group of folks who who met with the bishop prior to me becoming a part of it, and the bishop said, "Yeah, you can do this, but but it's going to be very difficult, and new congregations don't make it. You know, 80% of new congregations don't make it, and so you can do it. But I, I'm here to tell you right now, it's going to be really challenging, and it's likely that you're not going to make it. And so I enter into the position like or enter into the uh, congregation like. Two weeks later, into the small group, I think I met with seven people in in a, in a front front room, and and you know they were told by the bishop that this isn't going to work, and uh, uh, and at the time that you know I was meeting with them, and I'm like, well, let's let's start and see what we got. Uh, at the whole time, I'm interviewing at other places because they had no money, that the church had no, uh, the ELCA had no money to give, and so you know, basically being told. Even if we gave you money, it's you have an eighty percent chance of failure, and we don't have any money to give you, and we don't have anybody to give you, and so here I enter in two weeks later, and it, what I found though was that the people who I was meeting with and talking to, they had a sense about them that they would not allow this to fail, right? They were completely and totally invested in what we were doing and what we were trying to get started. And there was this sense that they were going to see it through no matter what. They would not allow it to fail. And so over the course of the first couple of years, incredible things happened, right? And we organized as a congregation in 11 months, which if you're if you're listening at home, you, you probably don't know what that means. But but that's a really big deal that we organized that quickly. That's probably the fastest it's happened and certainly in our synod. Uh, and so we were able to buy property and I mean just we you know brought on new staff members and now we're you know a, a decent sized church for 10 years later and and we've reached a point though where at some point we reached a point where it's like okay we're gonna make it we don't need to be completely 100% invested in this thing not to say that they're not 100% invested in it like they were however once you get to the point where there's comfort where it's like okay I don't have to worry about you know us not making it there's this this normal reaction is kind of to just to back off the gas pedal a little bit right and so you know this once you overcome the difficult things then it's like okay we can just take our foot off the gas pedal a little bit and we can you know we don't have to give as much we don't have to go as much we don't have to uh, you know our first couple of years our, our membership like like 75 percent of our members came to church every sunday or more and now it's like you know andy i don't know what it is for you but you know 30 to 40 percent is a good sunday right and um and so you just kind of get this, we can relax a little bit. We can relax because we've reached a certain point. And I think a lot of that, um, a lot of that at the very beginning that we're going to do this, that, you know, fire in our fire in your belly that says there's nothing that's going to stop me uh, went away once we reach a certain point. And I think that there's the, we kind of need to recapture that passion to recapture that to say, not for the sake of our congregation though, but for the sake of the gospel, right? That nothing, there is nothing in this world that is going to stop the gospel except for us being comfortable. And so I think that, uh, you know, for a long time I thought, man, if somebody just won the lottery and paid off all our debt and gave, you know, if somebody handed me a check for a million dollars to use for ministry, the things I could do, 
But then I, you know, go back to what I learned last summer on sabbatical. There are no shortcuts. And, you know, if somebody wrote me a $10 million check to build the, the church building that I wanted or the church building that we have, to, you know, how satisfying would that be? We did, it's not something we did together. It's just somebody won the lottery or somebody wrote a check. And, and I just, you know, that's a shortcut. And I don't, I don't see that, uh, I don't see that the church ever benefits from the easy way. Uh, and, and I think, as you said, you know, having things be more difficult always makes things grow, which is, which is uh, the opposite of what everyone would think. And, and I think that's, that just points to the work of the Holy Spirit in and among us. Andy? Larger rule in the church, often our intuition is wrong. Secondly, uh, the last statistic I heard about five years ago was that 90 percent uh, and I'm amazed they were able to give you that statistic of 80, which is great. 90% of all ELCA new mission developments do not make it to the five-year mark. And that was from a mission developer. And you ask for those numbers, and they are so hesitant to give you. I've asked many staff members from uh, the larger church, hey, what is the—and uh, they won't give you that number— uh, part of the reason they said is because what counts under what categories, but I mean, this mission developer said 90% are not making it. So you, that's really beautiful work there that you're doing, Nick. And I think also the thing to mention, the, the tragedy of the statistic I just named is that across all denominations, uh, church plants, new mission developments are four times more likely to reach unchurched people than existing churches. And then what happens in a mission development, and I was one as well, is that when you're brand new and small and growing, people love to invite their friends, and they get friends in, and they grow, and they grow, and they grow, and they keep saying, when are we going to have a building? When are we going to have a building? When are we going to have a building? And then um, when you do finally get the building, you your focus moves from, hey, let's invite, connect with new people to, oh, man, we got to pay down this debt. we got a building. We've made it. And the whole thinking changes in the church. So the building, what everyone thinks they need, actually becomes harmful in a way. So so just to recap, Andy is very anti-building. <laughs> we have a, what do we have here, 36,000 square feet that we renovated about three years ago. And, but it really, really needed renovation. So I'm not anti-building, no. In fact, in many ways, the buildings today are so different than they used to be. It's the whole, how do you create safe, unintimidating space? And the, the whole shopping mall idea was what uh, was going on for many years. You know, don't make it churchy looking and people, yeah, that's really the, the new model on churches. But uh, I could, Nick, you could get me going for hours on this one. But if we move on to verses 8 through 10, again, we're in Acts 4. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and I think that's the key piece here, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. So, Nick, Peter asked, why are we on trial for a good deed, doing something that's helpful? Uh uh, is there uh, punishment today, Nick, for good things, doing good things? Is that how it still works today? I mean, no good deed goes unpunished, if I've heard correctly. Oh, you stole my line. <laughs> Did I really? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's true, though. No good deed goes unpunished. But, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking through this, and I think that the better question is, 
do, do we still get punished for doing good things? Do we get punished for doing godly things, right? Because what is a good thing? And I think, I think we as the people of faith, we as the church have to say, well, the good things are the things that God would have us do, the things that are a reflection of what the kingdom of God looks like. And so what does that mean for us? Well, I think that there are times when we want to do godly things, but we don't because we're afraid. I don't know so much punishment is the word, uh, but we're afraid of what, what it might make, what it might look like. And, and, and so, uh, you know, are we going to offend people? Are we going to offend members? Because sometimes the godly thing is not the thing that, uh, is, is not the thing that people want. Right. And so the godly thing is like forgiveness. So who are you unwilling to forgive? What, what I remember, I gave a sermon seven or eight years ago and I talked about the, the, it was the, that human beings are created in the image of God. And so I put up some pictures of different people and say, so, you know, Mother Teresa created in the image of God and Martin Luther King created in the image of God. And then I put up a picture of Osama bin Laden created in the image of God. And people, there was like a gasp, right? So do we, is it, is it unpopular? Do we get punished per se? Maybe punishment's not the right word, but for encouraging people to do godly things, you know, scripture tells us about forgiveness. What about Adolf Hitler? I mean, who in who in our history has done things that you just think, well, okay, we can we can forgive people up to a point, but then there's a few other people on the other side of that line, and once you go over there, we're not ready to forgive that person. Uh, and, and so there's, you know, I I don't know what the answer is, but I know that we need to continue to challenge ourselves to to, to try and 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 do the the most the most we can uh, a, a godly thing so that the world that we live in can be a better reflection of the kingdom of God. And, 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 you know, that, that means doing things that, um, that, that are unpopular, right? Because the gospel is not always popular. The gospel, the gospel calls us to do things uh, that we don't want to do. The gospel calls us to generosity and to, it doesn't just say love your, it says love your enemies, I mean, where else have you heard that? Love your enemies, pray for your enemies. I mean, that kind of stuff, when you ask people to do that, that's, that's not, people aren't going to be nodding their heads in the pew like, yeah, preacher, preach it, right? They're going to be like, I, nope, that's a line I'm not ready to cross. And so there are times when I think that, uh, you know, the, the gospel calls the godly thing is something that's the unpopular thing. And how do we handle those things? What do you think, Andy? Um, yeah, no deed goes unpunished. And also there are things that, are difficult to do that we do forgiveness generosity that you named that ultimately become uh, meaningful and powerful for us and our experience of doing those things leads us to do more of that uh, to freely forgive and to freely give and uh, yeah a lot of uh, a lot of Christian life goes against intuition and uh, uh, our natural intuition at least and uh, God will often surprise us when we're obedient. What, be, what was difficult to do uh, becomes what we want to do. Nick? Yeah, amen. A lot of that stuff is difficult to do, but, but I think you said it perfectly. Uh, it becomes what we want to do, and, and that's the work of the Spirit. And that's, you know, that's how the Spirit transforms us and transforms communities. So very well put. So let's move on. Uh, next, uh, next section, we'll go to verses 18 through 21. So they called them, this is the Sanhedrin, Peter, uh, Peter and John are at the Sanhedrin. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Because Peter said this, you know, we, we were able to do this. We healed this guy. You can't deny that we healed this guy. He's right here, right? And you know that he, wa- he was crippled before. 
Uh, and so uh, we did it all in the name of Jesus. So the Sanhedrin said, what, what can we do? What can we do? So verse 18, they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all of them praised God for what had happened. So they get to the point where they, you can't deny that this guy was healed, and you, Peter is telling you it was, he was healed in the name of Jesus, the guy who you crucified, the guy who has risen from the dead, even if you don't believe it. And the Sadducees were people who didn't believe in the resurrection, and so it was a big deal for them. So, so they then they're told, okay, no more teaching, no more doing anything in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John said, no, I mean, we're going to keep doing it. We we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. So, what do we do when God's desires go against those who have a place of authority, Andy? Well, um, I think the the real blessing that we have is living in a nation with religious freedom which in most, if not much, of the world is clearly the exception, and where there are state religions and rules and all the rest of it. What's fascinating to me about that is in the nations where there have been state religions of Christianity, it's basically killed the church, and when they've opened it up to religious freedom, um, it, you know, certain aspects of Christianity other than the state-sponsored religion are the ones that flourish. So you're supposed to be this religion, but no, if we have freedom, you know. Uh, a classic example of that historically in the Lutheran, which is my, you know, background, is that um, the Norwegians, Hans Nielsen Hauge, was a pietist uh, preaching in Norway, a lay preacher. And I think he was arrested like 50-something times for, and I love what he was arrested for. He was arrested for uh, leading small group Bible studies and for presiding at communion. And the state arrested him because that was against the rules, those who have place of authority. And, and eventually about 50% of the Norwegians that came over to the United States during one of these big migration waves uh, came over because of religious persecution in Norway. And it's fascinating even to think about Norway and the idea of religious persecution. Uh, but what Hauge was basically practicing is you need to practice your faith as you're led by the Holy Spirit, and we have a higher God than the God of the state. Uh, someone could push back on that and quote the, you know, sources in Romans where, you know, uh, the authority has been placed there by God, and it should be respected. So you can go back and forth on that one. But Nick, what are your thoughts? I think it's an interesting question to ask right now, specifically because we have an election coming up. I voted yesterday, by the way. All done. Don't have to worry about it anymore. Don't have to look at any more ads. <laughs> um, but the, so the question, of, because the question about religious freedoms is part of the election, right? And I'm not going to get into parties and sides, but, but as you look at different platforms, right, the conservative platform and the liberal platform, you could make a theological case for either side. And, and I, think, I think that'd be fun to do at some point, that, that we make a theological case for a certain, not an individual, not a candidate, but a side, right? And, and, and so, I mean, you, you can look at the different sides and you can, you know, what does it mean to be pro-life? What does it mean to be pro-life? Does it, you know, is it just abortion? What does it mean to be pro-life and to say no to refugees? What does it mean to be pro-life and to put children in cages, right? What does it mean to be pro-life and to be pro-capital punishment? 
uh, I mean, there's so, I mean, you can jump back and forth on sides when it comes to this conversation. And there's some really great Catholic scholars who write about these. And, and I'm fascinated to learn as much as I can about it because, you know, but, but what we know is that neither side, no organization, no organization is perfect, including the church. No organization is 100% in line with God's desires, right? And so even us as the church, we do things that we shouldn't, right? There's times where we make decisions that when we look back and say, well, that, I don't know if that was the right one. And so, so then we say, well, if, if that wasn't the right decision, then obviously the Spirit didn't guide us into that, right? Or Because or the Spirit's not going to lead us down the wrong path. Uh, and so what do we do, though, when we reach a point where God's desires are opposed to those uh, to what the, you know, those who have authority are telling us. The, I, what I think is interesting about that is how many different understandings we have of God's desires, because what that what that could mean. Yeah, there you go. For yes. that, you, you talk to a hundred different pastors, you can get a hundred different answers, right? And so uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer. The only thing I can go back to is uh, you know Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany and and his attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler, right? Understanding that. Uh, clearly, it would be best for humanity if Hitler was dead. However, that you know, so so it's a question of Christian ethics, and and that's that's something that I, I, I one of my I think probably my favorite class in seminary was a class on Christian ethics. How do we decide what's the right thing, even if it's not according to the law of the land? Or uh, and so I I don't know what the right answer is, but I think I think for it starts with it starts with everyone, every one of you listening, every pastor at home, every, you know, deciding for yourself, reading scripture and figuring out what it is that you truly believe that is God's desire for your life. Right. What is God's desire for your life? And the other side of that is then, is that what you're doing? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, and if it's not, then what what changes do we need to make so that we can do our best to try to live our life in such a way that is consistent with what we believe God's desires is? Andy, what do you think? In the Lutheran theological language, this is all described as the third use of the law, at least for those of us who uh, go back a ways, uh, you know, which is basically the answer to the question from Paul, how then shall I live? And what I found in 26 years of ministry is that you know, the, the question gets raised when I hear arguments being made politically. Is your faith informing your politics or are your politics informing your faith? And why is it some people are so psyched up about particular political issues, signs, candidates? They're willing, willing to shout from the mountaintops, but I don't see them necessarily as excited about their faith, to say the least, uh, willing to witness, willing to preach Christ, willing to, you know, give sacrificially, really willing to take a stand. And what has higher priority? And the problem with preaching politics, which in Lutheran churches, for the most part, we don't do, is uh, at least in Lutheran theology, you have the first, second, and third use of the law. First use is, you know, civic, obey street signs. The second use is justification. Uh, and the third use is basically sanctification, being holy. And the problem with third use is when you preach politics, you're basically preaching law. If you love Jesus, you will do X, Y, or Z. And as Gerhard Ferdy, my old professor, used to teach, the third use of the law always turns in on itself, and we justify ourselves before God based on what we have done or said, 
rather than on what God has done on our behalf. And it becomes about us justifying ourselves rather than God's justifying work on the cross. Um, so, you know, that's classic, you know, Lutheran systematic theology. When you get up and preach law, you're not preaching gospel because law is by definition not gospel. And all of the law, our inability to live up to the law, uh, points us to our need for the gospel. And if someone really wants to get up and preach and tell me what to think and do, etc., uh, you know, they're just as guilty as the rich young ruler who didn't sell everything he had and give it to the poor and follow Jesus. He went off in his own way because he just couldn't do it. And that's the truth for all of us. So I'm, I'm traditionally very hesitant to enter into political issues, uh, to say the least. But I do encourage people, how is the Holy Spirit leading you? What is God doing in your life? And what are you actually going to do about it as opposed to simply talking to me or taking a stand or saying what someone else should do about it? Churches, you know, the classic definition of a committee is a bunch of people getting together to figure out what somebody else ought to do. And a ministry team is people that get together and say, we're going to do something about this. And, you know, what's interesting is in churches, people don't want to be on committees, but people are, if they're led by the Holy Spirit and passionate about something, they do want to be on teams to go and do something. And I tend to be of the position, hey, you know, run free, go go do what it is you want to do. And uh, where is the Lord leading you? And uh, so, Nick? I'm just making a note here. I thought that was hysterical. That was great, though. Committees are people get together and figure out what someone else is going to do. Uh, that's uh, that's That's wonderful. I love it. Especially the evangelism committee. They never actually go out and knock on doors and witness. They just, well, what are we going to do to get these people to witness more? Well, I don't know. You know, if you had a decent church, they'd naturally be inviting. But uh, sorry. No, that's funny. I mean, I, I, I'm really proud of the people we have in, in our committee. So that may be true for your church, but not for mine. But I know. I know. That's, it's, actually, uh, it's, it's not true of our church. I'm kidding around. But that's the classic and not true of your church either. I've been to your church and. I've always been very impressed by the ministry there, and which always takes good people. It's never, you know, only due to a particular pastor. But the reality is, is that 80 plus percent, I think last I looked, it was something like 88 percent of people who attend a church for the first time do so because they were invited by a friend or relative to join them. And so, uh, I mean, personal invitation is everything. Um, and, and by the way, one other piece is the average Lutheran on this. I'm getting into evangelism off our topic here, but the average Lutheran invites a non-relative to church once every—have I said this before, Nick? How many years? 20 years. This is an old—yep, once every 20 years. So we want to be intentional. Hey, uh, if, you ever, if you're looking for a church, come join us. Or hey, if you ever want to go with me to church, we need to be very intentional about inviting people. But What I love most about this conversation we're, happening right, uh, we're having right now is that this was going to be my answer to the next question. Oh, <laughs> I, I always do that, don't I? I lead. Okay, sorry, sorry. I'll read the verse and then you can say it all again, Nick, because I'm sure that, you know, repetition helps retention. So uh, it says in verse 29 to 30, And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And Nick Lutherans get nervous when they hear signs and wonders. Uh, but here in this passage, they're praying for courage. Do we need to pray for courage? And what would a more courageous church be doing, Nick? Would it have anything to do with inviting people to worship, do you think? I do. And, and if you want to hear more about that, I encourage you to rewind this podcast about three minutes and have, start with Andy's 
conversation <laughs> about evangelism <laughs> because I was going to go in that direction. And so uh, do we need to pray for courage? I think we all do. I think it's important that we all pray for courage. Uh, specifically in the world that we live in today, it's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to think that it's never going to be good again. It's never, you know, this pandemic's never going to go away. It's never going to be like it was. And there's a lot of reason for pessimism. And I think one of the things we all need to do is to pray for courage, uh, pray for the courage that that we are willing and able to uh, to be the church in the midst of difficulty, uh, difficult times that we're in now and difficult times to come. Uh, but uh, being the church, you know, in difficult times is certainly something that, uh, uh, you know, we all figure out what that means for ourselves. And I'm not saying praying for courage to go out and to put yourself in dangerous places. Uh, you know, if you're if you're if you're unable, if you if you have a, you know, if you if you're in the high risk category and you're not ready to go out, I'm not saying pray for courage to go out, uh, but I, you know, take good care of yourselves. But I think it's important that we do have courage so that we can talk about our faith, just like Andy said. Andy, go ahead. Nick, let's flip the question a little bit. Why do we not have courage? Why do we not? Oh, man. So you, so you take my answer and you change the question. <laughs> That's what I do. Well, Nick. because <laughs> if we're talking about in terms of evangelism, it's un comfortable conversations we've been we've been taught that the two things you never talk about are religion and politics for whatever reason we've decided well we're going to talk politics anyway but we've left religion off the table and so we're uncomfortable to have the religious conversations uh and so i think i, I think it's important that we say well you know we need to be grown-ups we need to have difficult conversations yeah we need to talk politics but we also need to talk religion and we spend more time talking politics because we spend more time watching fox news and cnn and we we know politics better than we do religion and so instead of taking the time to learn what the bible says or what it might mean to uh, to be a follower of jesus today what it might mean to you know as we go back to the last question uh to what are god's desires for me and my family and in this time and in this place uh and so you know we we know what the republican answers to those questions what is the republican desire for me today what is the democrat desire for me today well it's to call people and say vote vote blue vote red whatever you know but 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 what are what's God's desires? Well, we, we don't know because we don't have that constantly in our face. And so I, I think that's part of it. What do you think, Andy? Well, Nick, if people don't invite to church, what could we do to make it easier for them to invite to church? I mean, Lutherans have never been terribly interested in the answer to that question. I've been asking you all the questions. I'll give it a shot here. But, I mean, the churches that you see that have the strongest inviters are churches that are intentionally doing absolutely everything they can to make it the easiest possible way for people to invite someone and for someone to come in off the street and say, hey, this church maybe is somewhat relevant to my life. Uh, and, I mean, in the meantime, Lutherans love to do curies and benedictions and chant in Latin and use, you know, 300-year-old hymns. Uh, you know, so it's it's really kind of... My question has always been for the Lutheran church. We say, hey, the culture is you know, and decline, and what's the problem with people that don't go to church anymore, and we have to get used to the near nor new normal, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, you have all of these other churches that people are inviting nonstop, and we, we critique and criticize those churches and criticize them for selling out and for... I mean, there are churches that do everything they can to help people invite, uh, and in some ways, though, that's a little different from how... I launched off on one of the angles on this because in this particular passage, you know, grant your servant to speak your word with all boldness and while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. In this particular case, what the 
you know, you witness by saying, look at the amazing things that God has done. And signs and wonders were often miracles, you know, things outside of uh, the physics as we know it that God was doing, things that aren't supposed to happen. And, uh, you know, that's always going to be. But And what's interesting about that is we're afraid to pray for healing. We're even afraid to pray with people. I'll pray for you at a distance, but I'm not going to do anything biblically like lay my hands on you and pray for you. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a, I mean, what Acts shows us is a picture of the early church. And so, Nick? Yeah, just a follow-up answer. Can you, uh, just a follow-up question, Andy. Can you give me a scientific answer that proves the existence of God through the the theory of evolution? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Uh, no, I make, I cannot. Okay, I just want to throw something at you because you've been throwing at me. hey nick uh if god is love why is there suffering in the world (laughs) uh good question good question um (laughs) verses 32 to 33 i'm happy to answer that question at some point but um i'm 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 really excited about verses 32 and 33 uh now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and one soul and one claimed no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So, Andy, you and I both uh, have degrees in political science. One of the classes I took was Communism 101. I can't remember the, <laughs> the, the teacher's name. But um, Ron something or other, and, and he wrote the textbook, so... Um, uh, but people would say that the beginning of the theory of communism uh, is in the Bible. And so here we have, there was no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything was held in common. So is this an early form of communism, as some have said? Uh, interesting question. I'd love to get your take on that. But a follow-up question on the next verse, it says, great grace was upon them all. If we were more generous, would we be more aware of grace? What do you think? There's two questions for you. A um, couple of short answers. Um, some have said this is an early form of communism. Is it? Is the first question. And the short answer is no, it's not, because this is all, uh, you know, free will, basically free will offering. We care about our neighbors so much out of the what the Holy Spirit is doing in our own heart. We're going to care for that person. And communism is, by definition, as you know, uh, state-mandated. You give it to us, and we will take care of people. It's the government doing something by force, uh, you know, and if you disobey, you know, you go to prison in most of these communist nations. And and secondly, if we were more generous, would we be more aware of grace? I think the to flip that around, when we experience grace, we become more generous. Uh, I earned it. I deserve it. This is mine. I'm not interested, uh, you know, is very much the self-righteous answer. And... Uh, you know, generosity flows. If I think you deserve it, I might give you something. And the reverse of that is when I've experienced grace, when I've deeply experienced grace, either from another person or from God, then I'm aware of how important and powerful it is, and I'm more likely to be graceful to someone else. Uh, our own experiences of grace cause us to share grace with others. Nick? A couple things. Uh, first, let's go back to communism for a minute. What you, The answer you gave is communism as a form of government, Right. Correct. But communism does not necessarily have to be a form of government. Uh, there were hippie communes all over the United States 50 years ago, right? And and so communism can be a way of living without being a way of government. Uh, and so uh, communism at its purest form, when it doesn't have 
you know, evil dictators leading it, right? Or, or authoritative figures who are, you know, gathering all the wealth and keeping 50% for themselves and then letting the community live on 50%. You know, it, it is, it, it is very much kind of what they were doing here. Uh, we would, we don't like the word communism because it's, it represents something that the United States is not something the United States has uh, fought against. Uh, but that's the, the communism as a form of government versus communism as a way of living. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, William Lasore, who was a professor at uh, Fuller Theological uh, Seminary, said, communism says, what is yours is mine. I'll take it. Koinonia says, what is mine is yours. I'll share it. And so I think that there's the difference there is that communism says, what is yours is mine. I'm going to take. I'm going to take some of it, or I'll take all of it. And then, but uh, but Christian community on the flip side is, what is mine is yours. And so here I'm here to share it. And I think I think that's kind of the difference. Uh, but it, but it's interesting. I think this verse has been the foundation for a lot of writings that have led to a lot of forms of government that haven't been very good for humanity. Uh, but there you go. That's what I have to say on that. Any thoughts on that before I go to the next thing? So you're not talking about communism. You're talking about commune. Ism. <laughs> That's great. Living in communes, which is uh, basically uh, uh, free will, if I decide or decide not to to experience that. Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah, nice distinction. I think you know a picture of the early church, uh, Acts two, that we covered two podcasts back. Again, talks about how the relationships were so tight and they were so bonded on mission that they freely shared with one another in need. And I think within churches, we see that as well. Nick? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, next thing. So, Will, if we were more generous, would we be more aware of grace? I think it's important that we say, if we're more generous, we are not going to receive more grace. Because genera- because our, our grace is not something that we that is earned. And so if we give more, it doesn't mean that we're going to uh, receive more grace, Right. But I would say that as you change, as you grow as a disciple, as you grow in faith, and as you figure out that money is not the end all of life, that it's not the number one priority of life, that it becomes a tool then to bless others and to share with others. And we understand what it means to be a steward as opposed to an owner of all things. Right? And I'm just a steward of the things that God has given me. Uh, I think we become more aware of what God is doing in the world and how God has transformed us. And we can look back on our lives and see one of the ways, and you say this all the time, Andy, right? That, you know, what is the most important thing in your life? Look at your calendar and your checkbook, right? And so as we, as we grow as disciples and we grow in generosity, I think one of the things we look back on as we see God transforming, God not giving up on us, God being with us, uh, God, God revealing to us, uh, the, the best way to live and how we can continue to be a blessing to others and be part of the community. And so I wouldn't say that, that we get more grace, that we receive more grace, but I, I would say that we become more aware of grace, which is that undeserved gift that God has given us. Uh, and, and I love the way you said it too, the more aware of grace we become, the more we realize that, uh, the more we want to be generous. So it's kind of a, a catch 22 there where, um, you know, one leads to the other, it leads back to the beginning. So, and, you know, Nick, on all of this, you know, I tend to, you know, speak at all of this from a theoretical level, and we try and get it back, as you have said often at the front of our podcast, to uh, a daily life. How do, how do we experience this? How does this, where does the rubber hit the road, so to speak? And uh, what's amazing about the book of Acts is there are places in the country right now, or excuse me, in the world, where people are literally living out exactly what we read in the book of Acts. And I had the honor yesterday of just being a part of a Zoom group. I just joined this group on uh, ministry, multiplication, and ministry. And and one of the guys in the group is literally 
somebody who, with his ministry partner, has started a hundred house churches in India. It's a person native to India. In during the COVID period, during COVID, everyone says, you know, to all these Western churches, how have you done? And oh, it's terrible. We can't get in our building, blah, blah, blah. And in India, this guy has started a hundred house churches. And they're literally out there witnessing to the faith. And signs and wonders are happening. And these amazing, you know, what we would call miracles, hundred house churches in and of itself are miracles. And they're witnessing in places where it is absolutely completely taboo to do so. And there were discussions about even moving into closed countries, you know, to how do we share the faith and how that works. It's uh, what I just want to lift up as we close out here is that uh, the things that we're talking about are literally happening in the world. And uh, often, you know, to go full circle at the beginning of our conversation, they're happening in places that have the most difficult opposition to the Christian faith. So just wanted to share that a little bit. I was I was looking at this person. There were only 41 of us in this Zoom meeting yesterday. And I think there are 50 people in this group. And uh, I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, this guy, how is this guy doing these amazing things? Uh, in And uh, so I just wanted to name that. Nick? Yeah, great stuff. Great stuff. So that's all I've got for Acts chapter 4. Any last thoughts, Andy? Nope, that was my last thought. Nick, have a great day and the beautiful weather down in Texas as we prepare for the cold season to last here for the next 11 months. And uh, Just remember, you can always dress in layers. So you've know, you got the, the <laughs> fleece jacket underneath the winter jacket. So next time you're having coffee in your house, you can peel off a layer if you need to. We can close windows, too, I think would be a good idea. <laughs> I'm not getting in I'm not getting into that conversation. <laughs> That's great. Thanks Nick. Have a good one.